Science Officer Spock. Reporting as ordered, Captain. Please sit down. Spock, you haven't changed a bit. You're just as warm and sociable as ever. No, have you, Doctor? As your continued predilection for irrelevancy demonstrates. Gentlemen. At last report, you were on Vulcan. Apparently to stay. Yes, you were undergoing the culinary discipline. Sit down. If you are referring to the culinar, Doctor, you are correct. Well, however it's pronounced, Mr. Spock, it's the Vulcan ritual that's supposed to purge all remaining emotions. The culinar is also a discipline you broke to join us. On Vulcan, I began sensing a consciousness from a source more powerful than I have ever encountered. Thought patterns of exactingly perfect order. I believe they emanate from the intruder. I believe it may hold my answers. Well, isn't it lucky for you that we just happen to be heading your way? Bones. We need him. I need him. On this special episode of Movie Geeks United, the always enlightening and informative Ray Morton is going to be joining us to discuss the making of Star Trek, the motion picture, as we celebrate its 40th anniversary. Ray is the author of King Kong, the History of a Movie Icon, from Fay Ray to Peter Jackson, which is my favorite book on the making of any of the King Kong films, and this one has them all. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the making of Steven Spielberg's classic film is another one of his books, and Amadeus, Music on Film. He is a graduate of New York University and Pepperdine University, and Ray is a senior writer and columnist for Script Magazine and also works in Hollywood as a story consultant and script analyst. It's a pleasure to bring you back on the show for a third time. <laughs> well, thank you for having me back. I love being on. Thank you so much. Oh, we so enjoy it. We do. And so we're going to talk about Star Trek The Motion Picture. Like I said, it's uh, it's been 40 years. That's hard for me to fathom and probably hard for you yep. to fathom as well. And yeah, uh, it was. Uh, I remember very well the excitement about this film, uh, the anticipation. Uh, it was very palpable in the air, even though in the days before we had the internet and all that, uh, you could. There was much talk about it, and much discussion, and there were lines around the block when it came out. And I know in the, I, I was in the Charlotte, North Carolina area growing up, and that's. I can remember very clearly seeing the news clippings about all the people who were camped out to to see this movie. So it's it's interesting uh, to to think about that, and and you can imagine, I guess, the excitement when people hadn't seen these characters in really any live action format since 1969. So it was a ten year. Yeah, it was it was a movie literally ten years in maybe not in the making, then in the anticipating, um, and that I think that had a lot to do with why it opened so big, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think so too. And uh, so I think we'll just start with the genesis of the project and let you go into that. How it uh, and I'm using genesis, of course, which is a, a word familiar to most Star Trek fans. So pardon the pun. Yes, uh, but, <laughs> it's hard to but avoid. We will, uh, <laughs> exactly. But we will. Uh, we, we will. We will go into. Uh, I'll let you go into how this project came about. Well, the, it's really interesting because it's got this very complicated history which I'll try to make as brief as possible. But 
basically Star Trek went off the air in 69 and it was not considered a success on the network, but then it went into syndication almost immediately. I think, I think it was a year. I think it went on in like 1970. So of course that's when it became a hit. Uh, people were watching it. It was on at dinner time, you know, as, as opposed to 10 o'clock at night, which I think was its last time slot. So kids could watch it and younger people could watch it. So it became this incredible syndication phenomenon, and then the fandom uh, grew up, the conventions grew up. So it was, you know, it was a very big deal pop culture-wise. They did an animated series, I think it was in 73, um, which kind of kept it, the idea alive a little bit, and Roddenberry was involved in that, Gene Roddenberry, the Star Trek creator, and Dorothy Fontana, who was one of the writer-producers of the series, so it had sort of a legitimacy to it, um, and that kept it alive. But I think there's only a few episodes of that. Um, so the fans were really eager for something. So about 1975, Paramount started to think that maybe they could do a low-budget Star Trek movie to capitalize on all of this, uh, all of this uh, success that it was having, this fame. Um, apparently, Gene Roddenberry himself had actually pitched a prequel film while the show was still in production, uh, but that never went anywhere. Uh, so really 1975 is the beginning of the project. Uh, so they hired Roddenberry. They basically gave him an office, and they paid him to write a Star Trek, Star Trek script. And he wrote, uh, it's infamously become known as The God Thing, although that was not the original title of the script. Um, and it was basically... Uh, it has similarities to the motion picture. This mysterious uh, alien machine uh, shows up uh, over the earth and starts, mm-hmm. people start getting visions about God coming back and each culture has their own version of God. And then what you end up finding out is that the machine um, was some sort of intelligence that got stuck. It's hard to describe, like stuck in God mode and was really an alien imposter that was trying to take over the world or the universe. And so it's really a monster. So Roddenberry's idea was God was really a monster. Um, And allegedly it ended with a fistfight between Kirk and Jesus on the deck of the Enterprise. So I suspect that may be (laughs) apocryphal. (laughs) Um, Wow. Anyway, yeah, Paramount didn't care for that script. So then they basically told Gene he could write another one, and he started writing a, another script with uh, his assistant, a guy named John Polville, who later became the associate producer of the film. And they, while they were working on theirs, Paramount also brought in a whole bunch of other science fiction and television writers. They basically tried to get everybody to pitch ideas, and that didn't end up going anywhere. Uh, Gene's second version was also uh, not accepted, Although, legendarily, it's sort of a time travel story in which the Enterprise gets sent back in time to the the period of uh, JFK's assassination, and somehow they prevent the assassination from happening, and then um, that screws up the future in some terrible way, and the, the, again, the apocryphal uh, thing that you'll hear people say is, so the movie had to end with Spock shooting JFK in order to put history right. Um, that's not quite what happened in it, but basically J- they actually bring JFK to the Enterprise, and he has to uh, make the decision to go back and be at Dallas himself, uh, so he's going to sacrifice himself. 
that was the ending of that script. Paramount didn't like that either. But why that was important was Gene kept bringing that story back for every movie that followed after the motion picture. So, um, you know, it lived on in its own strange way. Um, Anyway, so finally about 1976, uh, Paramount brought in a new producer, a guy named Jerry Eisenberg, and Gene was going to be on it as, as a producer as well. But this guy, Jerry Eisenberg, was the guy who was, tasked with getting the film uh, put together. So he brought in uh, the two writers of uh, Don't Look Now, the famous Nicholas Rogue film. Uh, I think it's Chris Bryant and Alan Scott, right? And they worked for a year on a script. Yeah. They worked on on a year year with a script. And eventually Phil Kaufman was brought in to direct. Um, This was uh, after he did uh, The White Dawn, and I believe it was the great... Minnesota raid, but before he had done Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So they had come up with this concept to do a story in which the Enterprise goes back in time and to fight like an alien race that's trying to uh, mess with the development of the human race. And again, another time travel thing that kind of ends up with the Enterprise being the people who essentially bring, get humans started in their development. So kind of 2001 meet Star Trek, and that was in pretty active development. Uh, the script the script went through a number of drafts, and then Kaufman himself took a turn at it, um, and that was in production until, or pre-production until early, ni- about uh, April of 1977, and here's where the irony of all this starts to kick in. Paramount got wind that Star Wars was coming out, and they figured, and this is the famous line some executives said, they figured that there'd only be enough market for one science fiction movie. So they decided that they were not going to go ahead with their, that Star Wars had essentially beat them to the marketplace. And the famous line from some executive was, there's no future in science fiction, uh, which is just very funny. <laughs> so, That's amazing. Yeah, so the project was canceled, and then Barry Diller was running Paramount at the time, and he decided that um, there were three networks at that time, and he decided that he wanted to do a fourth network, kind of what he later ended up doing at Fox when he went over to 20th Century Fox in the 80s. Um, And they put together a collection of stations across the country, and it was going to be called something like the Paramount Network, and their idea was they were going to do a uh, one night of programming a week to start. It was going to be a one-hour television show and then a two-hour original TV movie. And they decided that the one-hour television show would be a revival of Star Trek because they decided, all right, Star Wars beat us to the theater, so we're not going to do that, but we'll revive it as a TV show. So Jerry Eisenberg and Phil Kaufman left. Roddenberry came on board uh, to produce the show. He brought in, or he and the studio brought in a writer-producer named Harold Livingston, who had done a lot of um, TV at that time, uh, and then a couple of other folks. And they got started putting together, I believe it was 12 episodes for this first season of of this show. And the pilot of that was a script called In Thy Image, and, and it was a story written by Alan Dean Foster, who was a famous science fiction writer. Uh, he wrote the Star Trek animated series novelizations in the 70s. 
And he's also famously the guy who wrote the Star Wars novelization that was published under George Lucas's name. Um, and so he, he was brought in and he wrote this story called In Thy Image, which is basically the story of Star Trek The Motion Picture, a, uh, an alien probe, Comes, is heading its way towards Earth, and the Enterprise goes out to meet it and discovers that it's a living machine, and then they have to do battle with it to save the Earth. Well, the thought was they were going to create that as a two-hour um, TV movie to kick off the series, which was kind of common in those days. And so work was beginning on that. At the same time, Star Wars had come out with a big hit, over the course of that summer, while Star Wars was being bigger and bigger and bigger, the Paramount Network idea fell apart because they couldn't sell enough advertising to make it a worthwhile venture. So those two things happened, and Paramount started to think about what are we going to do with all this money that we've invested in this Star Trek series that now isn't going to become a series. So they started thinking about making the two-hour pilot into a low-budget movie, so kind of right back where they started in 75, and releasing it in Europe theatrically and perhaps in the U.S. theatrically, perhaps just making it a TV movie. They kind of weren't sure, and as they were making their deliberations, Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out in November of 77, and all of a sudden there was a future for science fiction because that movie was a big hit, and suddenly Star Wars was not one-off, it was the beginning of a trend, and at that point, Michael Eisner and Paramount decided they were going to make Star Trek as a movie. That's the, how the project got started. Wow, that's, uh, that's that's very interesting. I knew it had a complicated yeah. path, uh, yes. a twisty path, getting from uh, where they had originally envisioned it and until where it wound up. And I think that's very interesting that Barry Diller had the foresight to create a network so many years yeah. before it became such a yeah a commonplace thing, uh, especially nowadays with all the streaming networks that are popping up left and right. Sure. He was way ahead of the curve uh, and using one of the Paramount properties to get to entice people to tune in. So that was – yeah, that's pretty pretty amazing when you think about that uh, from a 1970s perspective. So yeah, well, it, it so, also kind of tells shows you the convoluted way a lot of these things happen. You know, <laughs> nothing's just straight yeah. line apparently. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, this is this is very true. That's an excellent point. Now I wanted to get into the production a little bit. Uh, I know there are a lot of technical challenges and and things of that nature, but uh, just wanted to. Uh, get get into it when it went into production. How long of the length of the production and uh, yeah, all that, well all they, those types um, of things. They got started. I guess the decision was made to turn it into a feature in um, the end of 1977. So as they started to come into 1978, they started to rethink in thy image as as a movie, and they had everybody signed to TV contracts, all of the original cast, and they had actually already cast Persis Kambata, who played Ilea in the film. She, Ilea was going to be a character on the show. So she was already cast. Um, so mostly they were ready to go, because there's not that many other characters. The only uh, person that um, ended up getting cast uh, solely for the film 
was Stephen Collins, who played Decker, and he was not cast till quite some time later. So basically, early 1978, the, the, the production of the movie went on two tracks. There was the actual movie itself, and that was they had to do a lot of rewriting on the script, and the, the, the rewriting of the script on Star Trek is a story all by itself. Basically, they went through several different writers, and for different reasons, it didn't work out. Um, Harold Livingston had written the script for the In Thy Image uh, pilot. Uh, Dean Foster, Alan Dean Foster had written the story. Harold Livingston wrote the script. And then when, when it was put aside, the show was not going to go on. Harold Livingston and Gene Roddenberry did not get along. Um, uh, Howard Livingston did not think Gene was a good writer and he didn't really like him personally. They started off as friends. They, they didn't end up as friends. So once the series was canceled, Livingston went off to work on other projects. So they had brought in a couple of other um, writers and that didn't work out. So eventually Paramount was looking, they had a TV director, a guy named Bob Collins. He was going to direct the pilot. And when the movie was low budget, he was going to direct the movie. But then one of the things, the thing that gave impetus to the project was Star Wars and Close Encounters. And once Paramount and Roddenberry and everyone involved got a look at the visual effects in those two movies, they realized they couldn't really do a low budget Star Trek movie, that audiences weren't going to tolerate low budget special effects. They were going to have to go big. And because of that, the budget was going to have to be bigger. And at that point, they didn't want to use a TV director. Uh, so Bob Collins was shown the door. And <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was working on it, the executive, he had the idea to bring in Robert Weiss. And Robert Weiss at that time was a really heavy-hitting director. He was a big deal. And, of course, his... his uh, Science fiction credentials are impeccable. The man directed, you know, The Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> and Oh, yeah. And also, yeah, and had directed The Andromeda Strain a few years prior to Star Trek. So that was, you know, another really good science fiction film. Uh, anyway, Robert Weiss was brought in. Once he was brought in, the whole movie basically went on an upgrade. They, they brought back Harold Livingston to work on the script because they felt that they needed the original writer to really bring it home because the other writers had gone off in a couple of pretty bizarre directions. Um, one of the writers um, uh, recharacterized Sulu as a guy who had his legs cut off in an accident, and he was rolling around in a, uh, like an automated, it wasn't really quite a wheelchair, it was like a, kind of a shopping cart that he was attached to. It was very strange. <laughs> but, uh, wow. So, so. Yeah, it, it was going in a lot of directions. So they brought back Howard Livingston, and basically he and Gene fought for the entire making of the movie because Livingston would write, and then when he went to turn it into Robert Weiss or to the studio, Gene would rewrite him and present the, his pages, and the studio didn't like Gene's pages because Gene really wasn't that good a writer. So, you know, he did this a lot. Harold Livingston would get mad and quit, and then Paramount would bring him back for, at an increased salary. And this went on and on and on um, through the through the earth, through all through pre-production and actually all through production. The script was never fixed. The, the first two acts were roughly there. They did not have an ending when they entered production. 
So anyway, so the script was being rewritten. They had to upgrade all the sets because the sets had been built for television. So they brought in a new production designer, Harold Michelson, and he, he upgraded everything to the way that we're used to it looking now. And they also had a special effects company called Robert Abel and Associates. Uh, mm-hmm. Abel was this guy who had produced um, some really famous TV commercials in the 70s. You, probably people who were around in the 70s would remember this amazing 7-Up commercial where a woman transformed into a butterfly. Uh, that was his. And his most famous commercial was this thing called the Little Trademark, and it was a, a Levi's jeans trademark, the little sticker on the back of the pants that someone put on a leash and takes for a walk through this psychedelic neighborhood. So the, <laughs> the visual effects in those commercials were great. Douglas Trumbull was approached and did not want anything to do with Star Trek. John Dykstra was approached, and he was busy working on Altered States at the time, which he eventually got um, released from. Uh, so they decided to go with this guy, Bob Abel. Now, the thing about Bob Abel is he was a real visionary, talented guy, but he never did anything on schedule or on budget. And so Paramount said something like, he said, how much will the visual effects cost? He gave them a bid for $4 million. Uh, this was like January of 1978. And by the summer of 78, that, that number had gone up to about $12 million. Um, so all of this was kind of happening. And finally Paramount said, look, we got all these people under contract. We can't keep reworking and reworking stuff. We've got to get shooting. So the movie started shooting in um, August of 1978 with an incomplete script. Uh, They were building sets as they went along. As you know, all that kind of stuff is going to make a budget go higher and higher. Uh, But so they began the shoot. The shoot itself with the cast and, and Robert Weiss went fairly smoothly, except for that every day they'd be getting new pages uh, Harold Livingston would do a rewrite, and then Gene, re- Gene Roddenberry would rewrite Harold Livingston, and then Harold Livingston would find out, and he would rewrite Gene Roddenberry. And basically, nobody knew what they were shooting from day to day. Um, and Robert Weiss, who at that point had made like 40-something movies, uh, was famous for saying, in all my years in movies, I've never been in a situation like this before. Um, mm. Yeah, so that was going on, uh, and so the shoot was rough from that point of view. Apparently, it all went well with the actors for the most part. Um, they had to get Leonard Nimoy on board because uh, Leonard Nimoy originally was not going to be in the second television series, basically because Gene Roddenberry didn't like him. So he offered him a uh, pretty bad deal. He he could only be in two episodes out of every you know, 12 or 13 or whatever it was. And so, you know, uh, Leonard told them, no, I won't do it. He also was suing Paramount because Paramount was doing a lot of licensing of Star Trek stuff in the early 70s and not paying any of the actors. So Leonard had this lawsuit going on. He didn't like Roddenberry. uh, And the original script did not have Mr. Spock in it. Uh, because it was the pilot for the show that wasn't going to have Spock in it. They had a new character, a character named Zahn, who was a full Vulcan, and he was going to be played by an actor called David Getro. 
and Gautreaux ends up, he's the guy in the uh, motion picture, he's the commander of the space station that gets blown up at the beginning of the movie. So he ended up not being Zahn. Um, so all that was going on, and Paramount finally got Leonard because Robert Weiss, Robert Weiss didn't actually know much about Star Trek, but his wife was a big Star Trek fan. And she read the script and she said, you can't do a Star Trek movie without Mr. Spock. So Robert Weiss made one of the conditions of his taking the job that you've got to get Leonard. So Leonard ended up getting, like, all of his lawsuit was settled. He got a bunch of money. He got all of his other objections uh, satisfied. But then they had to kind of write Spock into the script. Uh, and, and Gene's idea was to give Spock a nervous breakdown, and then he would have to recover from the nervous breakdown as the adventure went on. And, and Leonard like, said, I'm not going to do that. So they came up mm. with the subplot that's in the movie now where he's gone to Vulcan to get rid of all of his emotions. And when that doesn't work, he joins the enterprise on their mission. So all that was going on. And then um, the movie wrapped in probably the end of 1978. They had one year because it was booked into theaters for December 7th, 1979. So they had a year. And at that point, Robert Weiss, um, the whole summer and into the fall, Robert Abel, the special effects guy, kept showing everybody great designs and concepts and all these great effects he was going to do, but he didn't produce a foot of film. And finally, as they were getting into the new year, Robert Weiss said, I need to see some film. I need to see what you guys are doing. And apparently the, uh, there was about 45 seconds of completed footage and the rumor has it that the footage was so bad that Robert Weiss fired uh, Robert Abel on the spot. Oh, uh, the, the actual transition took a little longer, but now Paramount was in a bind because the movie was booked in the theaters for December 7th, and they took all this advance money for it, plus they had all this merchandising tied in. So basically the movie had to come out on that day and you can't, you know, especially in those days, in the photochemical days, you know, you couldn't start a big effects movie like that in January and expect to be in theaters in December. But that's what they had to do. So Douglas Trumbull was offered a lot of money and other perks to come back. And the workload was so uh, overwhelming that he brought his company in. And then he went and uh, brought John Dykstra's company in. And Dykstra at that point had not, was no longer working on altered states. So the effects started in January of 79. And really they didn't start shooting film until April of 79. And it was basically the two best special effects companies in the world working around the clock every day without a break from April until about a week before the film went into theaters. <laughs> and in the process, spent about $20 million on the visual effects. <laughs> so it was oh, crazy. That is incredible. That really is. When you, and you yeah. can just imagine the, uh, uh, God, those guys must have been tired. <laughs> yeah, uh, Doug Trumbull mind. actually ended up in the hospital after it was over. Yeah, he, he was exhausted. So, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah, I know that <laughs> with uh, you were speaking of the budget – 
uh, that for a time, yes. I'm, I'm sure that's been surpassed, but there was a time when it held the Guinness Book of World Records record as being the most expensive film ever, uh, ever movie ever made, actually. Yep, so. yeah. Well, the, the cost at the time of release was about $45 million. The, the most expensive movie prior to that was uh, the Dino De Laurentiis King Kong, which was $25 million. So this movie was mm-hmm. $20 million more than that. Now, in the defense of the production, um, a lot of that money was all of the money from the earlier versions of the movie, all of the development money, all of the money from the, 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 the TV show that didn't go. So not all of that money was spent on the actual film, but an awful lot of that money was spent on the actual film. So it was still, it wasn't quite as expensive as the number makes it seem, but it was still a really expensive movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, I remember that. And of course the press just, they latched on to the yes. fact of how expensive it was and, and that turned into a whole other thing. Yeah. Well, that was the era of the big budget you know, movies getting out of control, like Close Encounters had gone way over, and then uh, 1941, Spielberg's follow-up, which came out right in the same month as Star Trek. That had gone incredibly over schedule and over budget. The Blues Brothers did, uh, which came out a little bit after. And and that and then of course uh, the end the end of the following year is when Heaven's Gate came out and that was another one of those big budget runaway movies which destroyed United Artists so that was the end of that for a while the the, the overspending kind of thing yeah except in the case of Star Trek I I think that it turned a, a fairly healthy profit it wasn't uh, a failure by it any did. stretch of the imagination right it it, it grossed about. I think it was about 150 million domestic, which in those days was phenomenal. Um, the the thing the studio was unhappy with is the movie cost so much that it was profitable, but it was nowhere near as profitable as as you know they had hoped it would be for them. You know, it it grossed very well. It wasn't particularly profitable. Yeah, uh, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, it's a uh... I know they were a little skittish to do the second one, which, of course, the budget was scaled way back for that one, we all know. So, <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> Scale for the second one was $11 million, so basically one-fourth of what, of what the motion picture was. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. So what were some of the technical challenges, if you have any uh, stories about those, um, if you have any specific incidences? And if not, we can move on to another subject. <laughs> right. Well, there, there was a number of them. Um, part of in the actual filming on the bridge of the Enterprise, which is where most of the movie takes place, most of the actors are. Um, the set was uh, a double level set, and it was buttoned up, meaning that they built the the set for the TV show. There was open walls, so they could kind of move in and shoot from different angles. The cinematographer on Star Trek The Motion Picture was Richard Klein, who, who Robert Weiss had worked with on um, uh, The Andromeda Strain. And mm-hmm. his feeling was that he wanted it to look real. And his, his thought was the way to make it look real was to make it real. So he ordered the set sealed. So, so the idea being that they would have to put cameras in a place that you could only put them if they were filming in a real set, um, in a real location. 
Um, so that added a great deal of realism to the set, but at the same time, it made it really challenging to shoot a lot of what they had to shoot because there's a lot of action and stuff going on and not quite as many available angles uh, as, as, you know, they would like. So that was very challenging. Another thing that was challenging was um, all of the view screens on the bridge, and there were a lot of view screens, uh, were, were back projection units. All of them had 16-millimeter projectors uh, built into the cabinets behind them. So anytime you see any kind of information on the view screens, it, it, imagine 30 16-millimeter projectors clacking away while you're filming a shot, and you can get a sense of the noise. So almost all of the dialogue had to be post-dubbed. So that was a big issue. Um, to make the screens uh, visible, they had to shoot at a very low light level. They couldn't overlight the Enterprise. So Wise and Klein decided to make it like the, the bridge of a submarine. So they shot at very, very low light levels so that the, um, the, uh, the, the images would pop out from the screens. But when you do that, you don't get any depth of field. So if you look carefully at the bridge, Richard Klein was a master of using what they call split field diopters. And mm -hmm. th those are things where you can focus half the picture and then focus the other half in, in a different plane. So if you look really closely at quite a few of the shots on the bridge of the Enterprise, they're shot with split field diopters. That was the only way they could get the image. Um, so all of that was pretty complicated uh, for those guys. Also, for the visual effects, Robert Abel was shooting um, 65 millimeter, so they had to bring a lot of 65 millimeter cameras onto the set. They would shoot a scene the way they wanted in 35 millimeter, and then would often have to reshoot it many, many times with the 65 millimeter as well. So simple scenes would often take days and days and days to shoot just because it had to be shot so much. Uh, you know, so much footage had to be filmed. Mm-hmm. Wow. Those are uh those are some really uh I, I can't imagine it's that's very daunting to think about that, but you know, in a in the analog era, I mean things took yep. a lot longer and it's yeah, it's it's pretty it's a pretty amazing accomplishment when you think about all of those things that they had the obstacles they had to to find ways yeah. to uh, to overcome. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's, it's um, a gorgeous-looking movie, you know. Like they, sure all that work paid off, but it was it was torturous. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the technicians probably were definitely in need of some R and R when it was all over. <laughs> I'm sure. Yes, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, uh, well, we were gonna get. I was gonna get into the post-production phase of the film and ask a few questions about that. Because uh, I know right. they were pretty much working on it right up until the last minute, from what I understand. Yeah. Well, the very fa the famous story is that uh, the premiere was held, and I forget the date, but it was only a couple days before December 7th. So let's say December 4th or 5th or something. And the, the premiere was held at the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., and Robert Weiss famously brought the last two reels of the movie with him on the plane because they had just gotten out of the lab. Like, they, they literally were still wet. You hear, you hear that a lot. Oh, they, you know, the print was still wet. Mm -hmm. These literally were still wet. Um, that's how close they pulled it. 
Um, the post-production when, you know, the big drama of the post-production was the visual effects. Um, as I said, you know, they basically fired Robert Abel at the end of 1978 and brought, uh, and they, they kind of, it's a little complicated, not probably worth going into, but the firing was in a couple of stages. So they originally, you know, the, there were several kinds of shots. There were optical shots and animation shots and then model shots. And so basically, initially, they took the model shots away from Abel, and then eventually they took the whole thing away from Abel. Um, and that would have been sometime around end of February, March of 79. So Doug Trumbull really only got going in full capacity on the picture in April. So it was really a lot of around-the-clock work from the visual effects uh, companies, uh, um, John Dykstra's company, which was where uh, the original effects for Star Wars were done, uh, the original ILM, which was in Van Nuys, California, out by the airport, uh, they became Apogee. So they were working out in Van Nuys around the clock, and Doug Trumbull's company was called Future General, and that was down in Marina del Rey, uh, which if you know Los Angeles, you couldn't really get further apart in the city of Los Angeles than those two places. So they were right. literally on the other side of the city from one another. Um, Trumbull's group shot everything with the Enterprise uh, and all, and everything with the V'ger cloud uh, that, that, that threatens them. John Dykes' company shot the Klingon stuff, and he shot the exterior of V'ger, and then Trumbull's group shot the interior of V'ger, so, again, all of this was going on, a lot of experimentation. Basically, they used all the same teams from Close Encounters and from Star Wars uh, for the most part. So, if you, you know, they basically used the techniques that they developed because that was the only way they could get the thing going. They, could, they didn't have a whole lot of time to, to do other things. But even so, the experimentation was, um, you know, intense and ongoing. And the film is really interesting when you look at it. Some of the effects are as breathtaking as anything you'll ever see. All of the stuff with the Enterprise and dry dock and much of it out in space um, is just beautiful. And then there are some things, like when they're on Vulcan, uh, some of the matte paintings are, they don't particularly work. And some of the effects... There's famously, as the Enterprise comes out of dry dock, if you look closely, you can see the, the stand the Enterprise is held on because they just didn't have time to paint everything out. But overall, the work was really incredible, especially when you think to yourself it was done in about six months. Both Star Wars and Close Encounters took 18 months, and Star Trek had more effect shots in it than um, either of those two films. So from that point of view, it was really incredible that they pulled off. And if there are flaws in the movie, they're very easy to forgive when you understand the conditions that, you know, it was being filmed under. I'm uh, sure. Yeah. And the other thing they had to do was there was a famous, it was a thing they called the, um, the memory wall. Uh, in the movie, there's a sequence where Spock goes out of the Enterprise to make contact with the, with V'ger, which was the, the living machine. Um, and in the original way they were going to do it, they had a thing called a memory wall where it was 
basically a bunch of glass cubes that they could project images on, and you would see all of the um, all of the the journey and the memories and the experiences that V'ger had on its way to Earth. And the the story was Spock would go into V'ger, find this memory wall, mind meld with it to to understand what was going on, and then it would attack him. And Kirk had to come after him and rescue him, and then they go back to the ship. But the memory mm-hmm. wall was this big impractical set, and they had uh, stunt doubles for Nimoy and uh, Shatner on wires, and it just wasn't working. So Doug Trumbull came up with this idea to essentially do a version of the Stargate sequence where um, from 2001 where Spock would go through and just see all of these uh, abstract images that would represent um, uh, Vija's journey. So he actually got Robert Weiss's permission to design and direct that sequence himself. Uh, so that's all Doug Trumbull. Spock's whole spacewalk is, is all Doug Trumbull. That happened in post-production. Um, the other thing that was a big deal in post was that uh, Paramount made a had an order, basically, which was the film could not be any more than two hours and ten minutes long uh, without credit, because with the movie costing what it did, they wanted to make sure they could get as many shows in a day as possible, and if it was any longer than that, they would lose a show uh, for each theater, and so Paramount had this mandate that the movie could not be any longer than that. So when they were editing the movie together, Todd Ramsey was the editor with Bob Weiss, who was an editor himself, as hopefully everybody knows. He's the guy who cut Citizen Kane, among other things. Um, Mm -hmm. They were putting this movie together, but they didn't have any of the effects because the effects weren't done until really late in the game. So they were kind of guessing at the length of things and all that. And basically when the effects finally started to come in in the last uh, two months or so uh, because Paramount had this time limit in order to put the effects in they had to cut out some of the drama and the character moments and that ended up making the actors pretty angry because Leonard Nimoy felt that most of Spock's characterization was cut out of of the release but they couldn't go past this thing that Paramount had said and they had no way of judging the effects so they finally, and also Paramount was paying all this money for effects, and they wanted to see it. So they weren't really allowed to trim it. Um, so that's why, you know, famously the movie is nicknamed The Motionless Picture by some people, uh, because mm-hmm. some of the effect sequences just go on and on and on. And that's, you know, that's because, because of this. Um, so that was the other big thing. And then they couldn't get Jerry Goldsmith started on the score because he didn't have a movie to score until really late in the game. And uh, famously, he, he conducted the last piece of music for the movie at 5 in the morning on Saturday, and I believe the premiere was Monday. So that's, oh. that's how quickly that went together. <laughs> so, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, he was he was yep. known to be uh he was a master at working under the gun famously for uh, Chinatown of course among many others. Yep. When he could churn them mm-hmm. out really quickly. So yeah, he had a real knack for that sort of thing. So he was definitely the man for the job in that case. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And his work is the one thing nobody argues about in that movie <laughs> because it's pretty it's pretty terrific. 
Oh, it's astounding. I I totally agree. It, it goes. It's as, it's right up there with the best of Goldsmith's work in his entire career. Yep. I would say so. Yeah. Well, I, I uh, just wanted to get into a little bit about the various cuts of the film because um, uh, there I know there are several cuts, at least two we know of, and maybe more. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Well, the theatrical, the one that was released in theaters in '79 was that preview that um print was never previewed they didn't have the time and robert weiss was felt that basically they were releasing a rough cut because as we talked about the you know the many of the visual effects scenes go on too long um some character moments are missing he never got a chance to do a fine-tuned edit on it uh, but paramount really had to get this thing into theaters and the famous the famous um Barry Diller line was that Doug Trumbull and Robert Weiss went to Barry Diller at one point and said, you know, you, we know you want this movie out of Christmas, but if you push it to April, we're going to give you like a much better movie. And Diller's famous comment was, I don't care if I have to release two hours of blank leader on December 7th, this movie is coming out on December 7th. So they didn't, they didn't get that. Yeah. So the movie came out, and and it was the movie everybody you know everybody remembers who, who saw it in the theater. So that was the first cut of it. There was some talk because um, films in those days were released in Europe months after um, months after the United States. So there was some talk about Robert Weiss going in and doing a re-edit, but that never happened. And also in those days, movies were uh, were re-released. Uh, usually about 18 months after um, after the original release. And there was talk then of recutting the film and releasing it in a 70-millimeter print. Unlike most of the big movies of that era, Star Trek was not released in 70-millimeter at any point. Um, so, and then none of that happened. So basically the movie was what it was. And then in the early 80s, it went on to ABC television. It was their Sunday night movie. And I remember having this experience, and I've heard many people did. I, I, I had very mixed feelings about the movie when I saw it in the theater. I, I thought it had a lot of problems. And when I watched it on ABC, I almost didn't watch it because I was like, oh, I, didn't, I didn't particularly love that film. And as I was watching it, I was like, wow, this is much better than I remember it being. And as it turns out, without Robert Weiss's participation, Paramount had added in a lot of the character stuff that had been cut out for the theatrical release because if, if ABC, ABC would give them more money if they could program it into a three-hour slot rather than a mm-hmm. two-hour slot, which was the usual. So Paramount padded the movie with these, these, these scenes, and all of a sudden it was a much, much better movie. That is called the ABC print. Then uh, home video got started in the early 80s. So the original release of Star Trek The Motion Picture on home video is the ABC print. It's the one with, and it was advertised as six extra minutes of footage. Um, but that, that six extra minutes was all the character and narrative material. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the, if you watched the movie on VHS, that was the version you were seeing. Um, and that was the one that went out on uh, early DVD, and then around uh, 2000, uh, they wanted to do, they were, Paramount was talking about doing like special editions, you know, 
upgrading, you know, putting special features on and all that kind of stuff for DVD. And through a combination of circumstances, uh, Robert Weiss was given the opportunity to go back in and re-edit the movie the way he wanted it finally. Um, he was initially a little reluctant to do that, but eventually came around. And also um, uh, special effects teams were hired, and a lot there were some visual effects that were intended to be made for the film to clarify some story points that were never completed. And so a, a company was hired and some effects were created mostly digitally um, to put those effects in the movie. And uh, the most famous one is at the end of the film, the uh, Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy and, and the rest go out on the uh, hull of the Enterprise and they're going to walk over to where the V'ger Brain Center is. In the movie, they just walk on this solid surface but the original intention of the visual effects was that there was going to be no bridge at all and then these sort of magical uh, illuminated uh, uh, shapes, really, they don't really have a name for them, would sort of land and create a bridge from the hull to the V'ger. To the so they did that. That's the most famous addition in the, in the home video version. They also... Um, uh, they, they recreated Vulcan so that the, uh, the visual effects there made it a much more believable planet. Uh, so they, they did a lot of like nice additional work. And they also created an image of V'ger at the end because in the actual theatrical release, you never see the thing. You really see bits and pieces of it, but you never see the entire thing. So they created an effect for that. Um, that was the version that came out. It's called the director's cut. And Robert Weiss, uh, apparently, before he passed away, he said, in his mind, that is the version of the movie he considers finished. Um, so he wants that to be considered the official version of the film. Um, and the, the, the controversy about that is that Paramount provided money for those effects to be created for DVD quality but those effects are not high quality enough for Blu-ray or, or a new print of the film. The elements all exist for that, but Paramount has never shown interest in paying to have them upgraded. So when you buy the film on Blu-ray, you are buying the 1979 theatrical version. Yeah, and that's that's really sad, too, because I know a lot of fans would love to see, including myself, would love to see the... Yep. Uh, the Robert Wise approved version, and uh, yeah. you know, I just can't. Yeah, exactly. I, I can't imagine why they would think that it wouldn't work financially with Star Trek being such a cash cow. I'm I'm pretty sure that they would at least break even. You would think. I would think, but I, I I've heard some different stories, and Paramount has a very weird relationship with Star Trek. It, it is one of their big franchises. It's actually the movie series that coined the term franchise. Uh, it, was, mm -hmm. it was originally a joke that Paramount used to refer to it as a franchise. Uh, it was never meant to be taken seriously. But, um, but what's weird is that they are, there are times they are very willing to exploit it, but there are other times, like if you get a box set of the Star Trek movies, let's say, or even the Star Trek television show, the extras are mostly very spotty and very 
sort of haphazard and sloppy. Some of them are quite good, and then some of them are just very lazy. And considering that that's its really big cash cow, I'm just really surprised Paramount hasn't really invested in it all a lot more. But I guess they feel they don't have to. I, I don't know. I'm not really sure what the thinking is. But the studio has always had a really weird relationship with that property. So uh, maybe an administration will come along that thinks more highly of it. We'll have to see, you know. Yeah, we could certainly hope, uh, I, I would say. And uh, in, in the meantime, we would uh, recommend all of our listeners to hold on to your DVD copies of Star Trek The Motion Picture, yeah. the director's cut. Yep, <laughs> yep. don't, don't get rid of it. <laughs> that's right. I, I I still have one proudly in my collection, that's for sure, and I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't part with it for anything. It's it's I've had it I bought it when it came out and I've had it ever since and so it's Sure, sure. Proudly displayed on my shelf. So anyway, well, listen, we really appreciate you coming on to talk about Star Trek The Motion Picture. This has been really awesome. This gives us a really better picture, so to speak, of what went into (laughs) putting this movie together, of the motion picture, and what went into all the tremendous effort that went into bringing this movie to, to, um, to the big screen and launching, as we said, the franchise, which uh, has yep. has really become such a, a mainstay, for better or worse, uh, that's actually ruling what we see at the box office now. I, can't, I think it all, it all stems from Star Trek, the motion picture in some way, I would say. It, it actually does. It, it, and he, Robert Weiss and a whole bunch of other people have basically said that had that movie failed at the box office, that would have been the end of Star Trek. So anyone who likes Star Trek and any of the subsequent series, the, the, the other movies that were made, the, the other television shows, The Next Generation and the others, and even the J.J. Abrams versions and, and now this new stuff on CBS streaming, none, none of that probably would have ever happened had the motion picture not, uh, not been a success. And, it, you know, it's, a, it's not a perfect movie. It's got a lot of flaws in it. But it has many great, great things in it, too. And I have always maintained that it's the one Star Trek movie out of the original ten prior to the J.J. Abrams that actually looks like a movie. I love a lot of the other ones uh, quite a bit, but they all look like television shows. That, that one looks like a motion picture. So I, I, I don't think the Enterprise has ever looked better. So uh, I think it has that to recommend it for sure. 